0: And, um, oh gosh, you guys, it's hard doing the announcements, um, because uh, we're talking about Jesus before Pontius Pilate today. And I'm not, I, as I get older, I turn 40 today, um, I feel like some of my more sentimental things that I, I used to be very sentimental, and I feel like, eh, just gotta like get the next day taken care of, you know, <laughs> and just gotta get, get this taken care of. And, uh, and yet today, and leading up to today, I was just like, man, for my 40th birthday to be preaching about Jesus before Pontius Pilate and being delivered over to be crucified, um, you know, there was something in that that I was just like, what an honor, Lord, to really do get to just be like, man, I don't care, you know, of course as you get older, but it's like presents and cake, or potlucks, like I love it, but it's like, oh man, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. It is just very sobering and a privilege to speak of him. And if you were here last week, this is part two of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. <clears throat> and I just had to write this prayer down this morning where I just said, Lord, protect us from being too familiar with the accounts of Jesus' passion so that we would miss the message for us in it, in that perhaps we're not familiar with it at all. And so, you know, all of the Good Fridays, you know, that we have had, thanks brother, all of the the times that we've maybe read the Gospels, I mean, anybody here like familiar with Jesus before Pontius Pilate, like been there, done that, watched the movie, you know, all of that, you know, like you're familiar. And even in preaching, it, it was like, let's just go ahead and blow past this, maybe get to those other parts of John, you know, the multiplication of some fish by the sea, or Peter's restoration, you know, or something. And just like, because we've heard it. We've heard the the Pontius Pilate thing. But if we feel like that, then maybe we've never heard it, you know. And so Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of this that would be good for us to just go over again. Isaiah 53, the... The forbidden chapter, the rabbis forbid the Jewish people to read this. Why do you think it's forbidden? And many Jews have come to know Jesus because as they've read Isaiah 53, they've found this is speaking about Jesus. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, Savior. And so Isaiah 53, I think we have it on the screen for you, maybe. All right. Verses three uh, through seven is where we're going to be going. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was laid, led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Did you catch some of those words in there that describe what we're seeing in Pontius Pilate's trial? Um, man, just kind of going through. We've got uh, grief. We've got. Stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised, striped, afflicted once again, slaughtered mid-seven. And so as we come before this Pontius Pilate passage, let's remember that those stripes that were laid upon him bring healing to us. Is there anybody here today that needs healing? Anyone here that you just know the depths of the depravity of your soul and that your sins separate you from God? There's good news for you today. The stripes that we're going to read about, that were laid upon Jesus' back, will heal you. Will heal you of all your sin, all your bondage, all your selfishness, All your pride, the wake that's behind you of destruction that's come from your decisions, your rebellion, your knowing better than God. And in that de-godding God, there's good news for you today. Healing. Restoration. Good as new. The chastisement that brought our peace was upon him. And so we're led to verse 1 of John 19 My notes said that this is, I have to number my notes so that they stay in order in my archives, and this is number 53 in John. So I don't know how many weeks are in a year, but that's like a year of full John, right? And so uh, how exciting though. Here, John, uh, Jesus before Pilate, part two. Let's look at verse one. This is mid-story, by the way, mid-story. Hop back to chapter 18. To to see the beginning with Pilate, for the sake of time, we're just moving on. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Last week we talked a little bit about Pontius Pilate, how incredible. Pilate, probably 10 years older than Jesus, and at the time that Jesus was beginning his public ministry, three years earlier... Pilate was probably, and I think history says it, that he was involved in the Germanic wars, right? The wars with the Germans. Uh, He was a blood shedder. He was a warrior. And at the time that Jesus is bringing light to Galilee, the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light, the prophet said, and Matthew backs it up. He's bringing light into Galilee and Pilate is shedding blood across Europe, basically. And uh, and so then through the series of events, Pilate, a Southern Italian kind of one of the last holdouts against Rome, then becomes a Roman soldier. He comes to Galilee, or he comes to Judea. He's given this governorship. Uh, it's not a dream job by any means, but it is a privilege to be a, a governor. And uh, critics of the Scripture say that Pilate never existed. People that would have you doubt the Bible and its authority and its inspiration and its canonicity and how it is our authority for everything concerning life and godliness, they would say, I mean, you can't believe these Christians are so dumb. Pilate never even existed. And you know what? For many years, people believed that to be true for thousands of years. And about 50 years ago, over in Caesarea, Caesarea Martima, Caesarea by the sea, Um, there were some people that were just kind of doing some sweeping and some archaeological work, and they found a brick. They found a stone. And that stone was connected to another stone, which was connected to another and another and another, and eventually, with a whole lot of sweeping and many dustpans, you know, they ended up uncovering And I I, I share pictures of this all the time, especially when we're going through the book of Acts, because they uncovered, some 50 years ago, uh, this giant amphitheater... The amphitheater that was where um, Paul the Apostle stood trial before Festus and Felix and Herod and stood there and said, I wish that you were all together and in as much as I am, except for these chains, you know, as as I believe it was Herod that said, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, right? I wish you were a Christian. Everything that I am, well, not these things, rattle, 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 you know. That amphitheater... That stage, that theater has been uncovered, and in the uncovering, in a special box seating area where the kings and the governors would sit, was found a capstone to a seat, and we have a picture of it. Can we show it, Jacob? And on that capstone, it says, uh, Tiberia, Um, see, I got to look at it this way. Uh, Pontius is essentially what the middle word is translated, and Pilate is what maybe the third line down says. And so historians found this stone that speaks of Pontius Pilate, and it was great validation that the scripture is true and is indeed authority. And now this stone sits in the Jerusalem Museum in Jerusalem, and when you go there, you can see it, And all the people said, yay, right? Like this is super exciting because today we read of Pontius Pilate and how are we to really know that he ever did any of this stuff to Jesus or that Jesus ever stood before him and it's just all a big farce. And there's archeological evidence, right? um, That shows that the scripture is indeed true. And so this Pilate, Pontius Pilate or Tius, I believe the top line, Uh, says, Tias, as the first part is uh, chipped away and Pilate, began to do something to Jesus that is called scourging. Scourging, you see it there in verse one. You familiar with scourges and scourging? Is that a word familiar used commonly in our vernacular here in 2021 Prineville? Um, A scourging, you know, it might be a whipping or a flogging. Uh, Some of the original lexicons speak of to beat with a whip or to punish. Uh, You know, when we think of whippings in the Bible, we could go back to the law and the Jewish way of doing things that says in Deuteronomy 25, it shall be if a wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and he'll be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Now, to the Jews... 40 blows he may be given, and no more, lest he should exceed this, and beat him with many blows above these, your brother would be humiliated in your sight. And so what this 40 blows became was 39 blows. 39 was considered merciful, and it was known to be one from death, okay? that was according to Jewish law. The Romans didn't have such mercy we're not dealing with a jewish beating we're doing dealing with a roman scourging far less merciful far more severe and it would be with an instrument called the cat of nine tails or the roman flagorum. you guys familiar with the cat of nine tails uh, basically a handle with somewhat maybe perhaps nine leather strands that would come off of this whip and the, the tails would be um, sewn in with bone, animal bone, uh, glass, metal balls, uh, metal gear-looking pieces. And the intention of these, of course, was to inflict more damage. It would eventually drive people insane as they are beaten with it. And the practice about Jesus' time frame was that the Roman soldiers would take the person receiving the scourging... And they would take them into the courtyard of the Antonia Fortress or the praetorium that we're going to read about in just a little bit. And there would be a large pillar in the middle of the courtyard. And they would fasten the person's body around this pillar in such a tight way that the back would become tight. And then the soldiers, often two soldiers, one on each side of this person's back, would come. And as they would whip, they would come towards the side and these nine tails would come around the front catch into the flesh and pull back. And historians say that the bone, the metal, um, the glass that were tied into the nine tails would then pull back the flesh. And, you know, many times we don't know that this is what Jesus went through, but that it would eventually stripe the back, stripe the front, and cause the vital organs of the person to be exposed. And most times a person would die before the beating was done it was actually somewhat merciful to the person because then they wouldn't have to go be crucified by the Romans. And we'll talk about crucifixion in the weeks to come. But here we have Jesus and all the prophecies that we'll read and have read before, especially from Isaiah 53 or perhaps Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross. And as we read of the beatings in Isaiah chapter 50, his visage being marred more than any man Uh, we can picture that Jesus, who before he carried his cross, his body was ripped open. The victim of this severe punishment would uh, oftentimes pass out or even die before the end of that beating. And then, uh, so we see Jesus going through something like that. And, you know, the passion of uh, the Christ really doing a good job in, displaying that and illustrating that. Uh, moving on in verse 2 you know I, I appreciate you know often I will go through in Good Friday and things we go through a lot of the medical aspects of, of the cross and of these things and, and we probably will in the weeks to come and I appreciate another preacher friend of mine who says uh, you know the gospels actually don't speak that much in detail to those things because we can often get more focused on that than the bigger deal that the Son of God just took on flesh and just died for us. Like, that's kind of like the overarching big deal that God died for sinners to redeem them from their sin. And so, moving on, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And, uh, you know, of course, we have our wonderfully satanic goat heads uh, here in Central Oregon, or as we call them, the devil's eyelashes, you know, uh, we try, we've, we've really groomed our property, especially around the house from those things, they're pretty much gone, and the other day I found one creeping under the trampoline, and I pulled it up, and it was, took a lot in my shoulder strength to lift it up for a picture, and lift it up off the ground, just these wicked, poisonous Goathead thorns, you know. And as you're spending time in Judea, you see that there are thorn bushes there that have these one to two inch thorns that are just gnarly. You know, if those are the devil's eyelashes, then you know these are the devil's canine teeth or something like that. You know, these things are are wicked. And uh, and so to see them, you know, twisted into a crown placed upon Jesus' brow. And, um, and then, you know, so many could probably speak to it better than me concerning, you're one of them, concerning head wounds, you know, and the blood from head wounds. And one time I was putting in a fence at our church in Corvallis, and our drummer from the worship team was using just a, a fence tamper to tamp down some posts. And it just, he hit the top, bunk and it flipped down, and it just bunked him on the head. And it was like, whoa, are you okay, man? And he's like, I think so. And he looks at me, and it was just like you know, I was like, we got to get you to the hospital, you know, it was just like a little bunk, you know, and uh, these crown of thorns put on the head, historians say then with the reed that they would mock Jesus with, they'd bunk him on that crown of thorns and cause those thorns to be driven like nails into his head. A lot of this is just, you know, um, kind of history and word down through the ages, but um, as we have sung recently, Uh, that the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Isn't it amazing as we read this? He's not around the Roman pole being flogged anymore. He's not on the cross anymore. as, As much as the crucifix maybe had good intentions, he's not on the cross anymore. And he's not in the tomb even. But he's at the right hand of the Father in glory Crowned with glory, and there was a big old homecoming parade, and the gates of heaven were opened. Who is this king of glory? As Third Day wrote the song from the Psalms, you know, and uh, and no longer is he crowned with thorns, he's crowned with glory, and we can rejoice in that. We we hate reading of this. Are you the kind of person that when you read a movie and you know what, or you watch a movie? Unless it's in subtitles, then you're reading it, you know? And, you know, it's something, JFK, you know, and he's in the Cadillac, you know, and he's going down the road, and it's, you know, you're like, maybe this time he won't get assassinated. You know, that's how I am. I'm like, something's gotta give, you know? How many times can this guy die? And uh, it's the same with reading, you know, or maybe watching The Passion or something, and you're like, surely there will be someone that comes and stops this whole thing, you know? And, uh, you know, it happened, and we read of it happening, but we can rejoice because he is in glory now as they put the crown of thorns on his head after they intentionally weaved one together, placing him uh, on him a purple robe. One preacher said he wasn't sent to the principal's office to get a spanking. This is where the beating continues. And through the crown and the robe, the cruelty adds to the mockery. He's ridiculed here. He's made fun of. Anybody been ridiculed ever? Anyone been made fun of? You know, you don't have a face like that. If you saw the little kids with their little... You don't have a face like that and make it through school without the occasional Quasimodo joke or bucktooth joke or fly's eyes. I don't know why they said I have fly's eyes. Right? What Daryl. Dude. It's painful. Um, you know, and, and so, man, the little, the little things are painful and hurt, right? And, and yet here we have soldiers, the Navy SEALs of the Romans, you know, at the Antonia Fortress. And they are mocking and putting, you know, taking the intentional thought. He thinks he's a king. Let's show him, you know, put the crown together. Let's get him a robe. He says he's a king. Get the robe. Bring it out. And, and if you remember last week, Herod also placed a robe upon jesus so twice you know oh so so clever you know jesus is getting the robe but he's a good one they did that over at herod's place you know you're pretty clever though good one you know second robe that is placed upon jesus kings and rulers often wore purple because the dyes were made from fabrics that had this expensive color placed upon them that purple was hard to get and so there was this cruel irony that Jesus was a king as this purple robe was placed upon him. And the cruelty continues as verse 3 says, Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. The original manuscript says that they came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. So, big deal, right? You know, um, it is a big deal, you know? <laughs> There's the difference between someone over in the corner, over by the lockers, making fun of you, and someone coming up to you in your face and making fun of you and mocking you and ridiculing you. So they came up to him. They said, hail king of the Jews. And Matthew 27, 29 says that after they twisted the crown of thorns, put it on his head, they put a reed in his right hand. Oh, king like you needs a scepter, you know, place the scepter in his right hand And then it says, as they came up to him, they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. This is all prophetic. Remember Mark chapter 10, verse 34? Jesus, I believe he's still in Galilee at this point, says, they'll mock him. So he's prophesying of himself. They're going to mock me and they're going to scourge me and they're going to spit on me and they're going to kill me. And then he throws in this wonderful word of hope that nobody was listening to. But don't worry. On the third day, he will rise again. As with Herod, the mocking continued in that locker room. Remember with Herod, uh, Herod, this Jewish king, puppet king, had his men of war also treat Jesus with contempt. It's Luke twenty-three, eleven. He had his men of war treat Jesus with contempt and mock him. And then they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, it says. Our text today in verse 3, John 19, 3, says that they struck him with their hands. In the Greek, it's the word rapsimata. Think of like rapping on a door. Rapsimata, striking him with their hands, uh, with a blow, with a slap to the face. In the lexicon. Uh, One historian writing about hand-to-hand combat is that it's just so much more intense and personal than perhaps shooting from a distance. And here these soldiers, you know, they, they bring it close. They bring it in. And with their own flesh, flesh to flesh, strike, slap, rap him in the face. But it is fulfillment of the prophecy, Isaiah 50, verse 6, where Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry. Isaiah says of Jesus, the Messiah, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. Or Isaiah 52, 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Do we have, Jacob, do we have the video loaded by chance? Is it ready to go? Trying something from a remote distance. Oh, who's this guy? It looks just like that picture that you've seen. All right, so I know the sound was, was very hard, but hey, quick shameless plug for Israel 2022. All right, next November, we're working on it. Chris is in communication with our travel agent, so start saving up. Uh, we're just dealing with a few little minor, minor details, checking on the pandemic and what that is, what's happening with Israel with that. Uh, but let's go ahead and show some of these other pictures, because you may have noticed I pointed over to a part of the floor that was lit up. Um, this is carved into that Roman floor, this original Roman floor in the praetorium, in this Roman locker room. And uh, maybe in, anyone that's been in the military, you know, there's probably a, a card table somewhere or something like that, or Monopoly or Taco versus Burrito or whatever it was that you guys play. And uh, And here they had, in the Roman locker room, carved into the ground what was called the Game of the Kings. Okay, so this is actual... Uh, carving there in that. And let's go ahead and and flick to the next slide there. And uh, someone did a great work of um, overlaying how this game was played. And just like Taco versus Burrito, I don't quite get it. But it just takes time, sitting down with your kids and maybe having them explain. Okay, anyways, um, here with the Game of the Kings, uh, we have some of the basic things, like a dice or a die. Up in the top, see the little square? Uh, This double square represents a dice, and the soldiers would throw markers into the square. Um, Let's read the bottom here real quick. It was a dice game to the god Saturn, which was played more intensely during his feast. The players took a different identity. Slaves were considered freemen. During the game, a prisoner condemned to death was chosen to be king for the day. He could do whatever he wanted for the day. But at sundown, he would be killed. So I'm sure there's some great writings on this. I'm basically gonna describe it as told a few times from the tour guides and then, you know, and so on. So, uh, but basically what we have is uh, we have these bees on their sides, king in Greek or basilius. We have um, a scorpion. They're the symbol of the Roman legion. We have a large circle representing a crown. We have the dice up top, and then kind of the game board is this line. And to me, it almost—it's kind of like uh, what do you call them? Uh, the the heartbeat. It's the beat. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. What do you want from me? It's um, the beat. Okay. This black line is thought to represent the lifeline. The line crossing it towards the end represents a sword which cuts the lifeline. And this part of the game means death for the prisoner. So I may be assuming that in the Roman locker room where they have a game carved on the ground called the game of the kings, that when they had a man who was being called the king of the Jew- Jews, and they crowned him with a Roman crown and gave him a rod and knelt down and said, hail king of the Jews, that there may have been that soldier that said, Guys, why don't we incorporate the old Milton Bradley classic, Game of the Kings, and we'll have a double game here, all right? But what we do know is by the end, that sword ended the lifeline and that he would be led to Calvary, Golgotha, to be put to death. In this game, uh, he was, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Oh, we have have still have some time, you guys. Like, okay, let's move on then. Verse four. You guys remember from last week that the Jews wouldn't come into this Roman headquarters because they didn't want to defile themselves being so close to Passover, you know. And so they stayed outside. And so Pilate, the governor of for Rome, would come in, deal with Jesus, go out, deal with the Jewish leaders, come in, deal with Jesus. Go back out with the Jewish leaders. And so here we have him go back out to the Jews again. Verse 4. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. So Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. His scourging of Jesus, believe it or not, it's hard for us to understand, was actually him trying to help Jesus out. Maybe if I just beat him, the Jews will see him in such a pitiful state that they'll just say, ah, he got what was coming to him. Let's go, guys. You know, let's go get ready for Passover. Let's go get ready for the Sabbath. And let's just let him be. He learned his lesson, you know. um, We're gonna see that that's not the case. So the scourging was a hope that maybe they'll back down. We beat him, you know. I'll back off and just chill out a little bit. And now he says, hey, I'm going to bring him out to the Jews. So then maybe now they'll see him and they'll be, man, the, all that we've studied about the whipping, you know, and the crown and the beatings. And, and look, we mocked him. You, oh, you think you're a king? He'll never try to be a king again. Never going to do that. So let's just stop, right? He's innocent. Let's just let him go. It's perhaps, maybe you'll see that I find no fault in him. Isaiah 53 9, says that at the end, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He wasn't an insurrectionist. He wasn't leading revolts. He wasn't uh, beating anybody. There was no violence. And and that was on the physical realm. Then even in the the philosophical realm, he wasn't even lying to people. There's no deceit in his mouth. Clark tells us that Pilate made five several attempts to release our Lord that, and and we learn that from Luke's gospel, chapter 23. So five attempts of him trying to get Jesus off the hook while somehow maintaining his like peace with the Jews and his relationship with Caesar and, and kind of running things well. So I'm bringing him out. And so in verse five, then Jesus came out. Wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Something about this phrase, then Jesus came out. There's an old, I think it's around the Puritan time frame, that loving the, the preaching of the word of God, they would say, bring out the book. Bring out the book. And then during the Lord's Day on Sundays, really trying to spend focused time, not so much talking about the things of the week and and, you know, the races and the games that are on. And, like, let's try to keep it about the Lord. So let's bring out the book, they would say on the Lord's Day. And they'd read. And and here it's, then Jesus was brought out. Then Jesus came out. He made that grand appearance. The word of God, the word made flesh, coming out, wearing the crown of thorns. And what does Pilate say? Something also dramatic. Behold the man. A dramatic Utterance, behold the man. Now, Pilate is speaking with dripping irony, as he sees Jesus all bloody, all beaten, marred more than any man, appearance different than the sons of men, saying, You guys, look at this guy. He's you know, some have said, and in my latest studies I haven't found a lot of evidence for it, but some have said that it's literally Behold, this is a man. Right? Behold, this is, this is a person that we've done this to. And this is the guy that you find so dangerous and so threatening. Can you not see that he is harmless and somewhat ridiculous with his, his crown and his reed and his, and his cape on? If the governor is mocking Jesus, he's actually ridiculing and mocking the Jews just as much and with no less venom. As one preacher said, yeah, behold the man. Behold the embodiment of humanity. There has never been a man like this in perfection. This is not the man of Jesus Christ superstar. This is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This is the son of man before whom men have hid their faces and his sheep before the shears is silent. So this man opened not his mouth. This is not some pathetic piece of humanity who can do nothing of himself. This is God incarnate. This is the one who in a few moments is going to say, I can call 12 legions of angels and the whole thing will be over in a moment. But he's going to go down this road anyways. One hymn says, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan for you. And all of the witnesses here, outside the Antonio Fortress, inside the Antonio Fortress. They're blind to see it at this time. But this man, dressed in a purple robe, covered in his own blood, was actually displaying his glory. The glory of the one and only Son of God. And what the Romans and the Jews saw as pain and disgrace and weakness and brutalization was actually evidence that he was in his glory at the moment. Trapp said, If ye be men, take pity upon a man so miserably misused. And if ye be good men, let him go who is innocent. Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan, Whatever Pilate's intention, the vision of Jesus failed to arouse the hearts of the multitude, any pity for him. And they clamored for his death. Moving on to verse six. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Here their blatant and obvious agenda before it was we can't do Uh, death penalties, only you can do death penalties, and now the agenda is even more clear. We don't just want any death penalty. We're motioning for a crucifixion here. We're motioning for something that both Deuteronomy and Galatians affirming Deuteronomy would say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree we don't just want this guy dead we want everyone to forget this guy we want him to be anathema we want if they do think of him they're spitting at the ground when they think about him because he's going to be hung on a tree and as the Jews know Deuteronomy cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree and so here's what we want Pilate we're not going to let him go we're not impressed that he's been beaten we have no pity or compassion for him we want him crucified and the chant will go on crucify him pilate says in matthew 27 23 why what evil has he done crucify him you guys i find no fault in him why what evil has he done they cried out all the more matthew says let him be crucified luke 23 22, then they said to him a third time Why, what evil has he done? I've found no reason for death in him. I'll just chastise him and let him go. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, Peter is preaching and he tells the Jewish people, uh, here's the second half there, that they delivered up Jesus and they denied him in the presence of Pilate. When Pilate was determined to, to let him go, so I don't know if you're a waffle fan like I am, whole wheat, coconut oil instead of Crisco, uh, but Pilate's waffling here. I mean, he kind of gets up the courage as he's with Jesus to say, "Sinless, gonna let him go." Goes out there, looks at the faces of the Jewish multitude, says, "But what do you guys think?" In a sense, you know, he's just waffling here. And uh, and Peter, in his preaching, says, "Pilate was determined to let him go." but you denied Jesus in Pontius Pilate's presence. That year when we filmed that video in the Antonia Fortress, just before we'd gone into that corridor, uh, my pastor Rob was giving a little sermon on the subject, and our uh, tour guide, who we've used in Israel for 20, probably 25 years, Elon, just a friend, love the guy, um, is not a practicing Jew, and not a Christian. He, 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 Just can't get to the place that Jesus is God. I don't understand that. So he's not born again. He's not a Christian. But he spent a moment talking about the beating of Jesus. He knows the New Testament probably better than any of us. And, uh, And he asked the question, so who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans or the Jews? And in fact, after this moment in the centuries to come and it would impact thousands of years, of course, as you know history, uh, the Jews would be blamed for Jesus' death. But theologically, and it's in a song that we sing at church sometimes, we come to the conclusion, it was my sin that held him there. Who killed Jesus, the Jews or the Romans? Rory Rogers killed Jesus. A little buck boy that you saw, you know, such a good, just so inherently good, just American, you know, country boy, you know, straight B student. Does it get any better? I'm wondering. Straight A's are a little, you know, can hardly be around him. Straight B's, I can hang out with that guy, you know. Inherently righteous. No, that kid nailed Jesus to the cross, and I hope that you would find the humility. To come before the Lord and say, it was my sin that held you there. It was my sin that you had to pay for with your perfect, spotless blood. Who killed Jesus? Sinners killed Jesus. Anyone for whom Jesus died killed Jesus. May that prompt us to love for him as our hero, rescuer, champion. And so discovering that Pilate's stratagem has failed, Pilate responds with dismissive indignation and disgust by saying, you take him and crucify him. There's emphasis in the language, you take him. It's a sarcastic taunt. You bring him to me for trial, but you won't accept my judgment. And then the Jews snap back There's a whole lot of mocking going on. There's like a mockingbird in the courtyard. And as much mocking as the mockingbird is doing, the Romans are mocking Jesus. The Jews are mocking Jesus. Herod is mocking Jesus. Pilate mocks Jesus and mocks the Jews. And now the Jews do their dig back to Pilate. Because the Jews answer him back. We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. What they're doing here is showing Pilate, don't forget your job as governor over our area, if that's what you are, is to uphold not only Roman law, but local law. And we have a law that anyone claiming to be God will be put to death or should be put to death. And here we have because he made himself the Son of God, will you underline that? Do you have a pen? Are you an underliner? It's okay if you don't want to under, but maybe note it because he made himself the Son of God, the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus knew Jesus was claiming to be God matthew twenty 63 through 66. It is as you say, Jesus says. Jesus knew Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. John knew Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. What I'm getting at is there was a whole lot of people that were aware that Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. And critics of Christianity say Jesus never claimed to be God. Everyone knows that Jesus was claiming to be God and the Jews want Jesus's head for it. They want him cursed for it. Even John the Baptist testified in John 1.34, and I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. If you're wondering the Son of God, it means that Jesus is God. In John 20, 31, by the way, key verse of the book of John, this verse tells us why John was written. This verse tells us why we're doing a part two of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Are you wondering why we're doing so much here and dragging this on for so long? This verse tells you, these things were written that you might believe That Jesus is the Son of God. What happens when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? When you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you have life in his name. Your sins are washed away. Your hard, rock-solid, rock-steady heart is taken out. And then... new heart that is moldable and can beat and is full of life and doesn't need to be told anymore no god no it already knows god it wants to know god it can have a relationship with god it's soft and it hears from the lord And it reads the scriptures and it understands and comprehends the Bible. It wants fellowship. It wants to be in church. It wants to serve one another and love one another. That new heart, do you guys know that that's the new promise? It's called the new covenant. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they all speak of it. One day, the day is coming that you won't have to have that stone cold killer in that. You're going to have a moldable, pliable, soft and beating new life. These things were all written. The story of Pontius Pilate, the Jews and why they wanted Jesus killed. Why does it mention this guy ought to be crucified and killed? We have a law. He is claiming to be the son of God. All of this was written so that you would know that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. You guys almost done finally. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was all the more afraid. Or maybe your version says, he was even more afraid. I didn't even know he was afraid in the first place. Now he's afraid. And then it's another notch. He's even more afraid. It's the Greek malone. Carl Malone, you know. Uh, even more afraid. Why even more? Why is that mentioned here? To a Greco-Roman, to hear something like, this guy claims to be God... To a Greco-Roman, it sounds something different than maybe it sounds to you or even to a Jew. To a Roman soldier, it had nothing to do with blasphemy. It presented no threat to the Roman Empire. But it placed Jesus, and I'm quoting from Carson, in an all-defined category of divine men. Gifted individuals who were believed to enjoy certain divine powers. If Jesus was a son of God, in this sense, Pilate might now feel a twinge of fear. He just had Jesus whipped. And to the Romans who see a God under every rock, this guy's probably a God, and I just beat him. So now he's afraid. And so now Pilate goes back in with Jesus. How are you feeling? Can I get you some Neosporin for those wounds? Because I just heard some new information. And uh, I have a question for you. Verse 9. Where are you from? Heaven? You know, are you a god? That's what I'm getting at here. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate seeks to alleviate his own fear by questioning Jesus about his origins. Where'd you say you were from again? But Jesus gives him no answer. The question that Pilate phrases cannot rightly be answered with a word or a phrase or a clause from battered and bloodied lips. At least not if Pilate wants to really understand where Jesus is from. Pilate has shown no interest in understanding up until this point. Jesus said, I came to bear witness of the truth. And as Pilate's walking out the door and shutting behind him, he says, what is truth? Shuts the door behind him. And now he wants to know something else. Jesus is like, you're not really interested. The Roman prefect governor was more interested in political maneuvering than in justice. And he might be showing a superstitious fear here, but no remorse. In fact, he's still going to strut his stuff on the stage of human power as he's enslaved by political threats by the Jews and the Romans. Look at verse 10. So there's no answer from Jesus. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus' pattern of silence was more than him just pleading the fifth. You have the right to remain, remain silent. And so Jesus is like, mm, Miranda rights, you know, or whatever. You know, it's probably not Miranda rights. All you law enforcement guys are like, this guy doesn't know board games and doesn't know the law. Well, Isaiah tells us in fifty three seven that he opened not his mouth. And like a sheep before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. With Caiaphas, the, Rome, uh, the Jewish high priest, back in Matthew twenty-seven twelve, while he was being accused uh, by the chief priests and elders, he opened not his mouth. Uh, it says in Matthew twenty-seven twelve at the end, he answered nothing. Pilate heard him answering nothing. Can you? Do, he heard him answering nothing. Observed Him answering nothing. And then Pilate says to him, Don't you hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Fulfilling prophecy. Like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opens on his mouth. With Herod, Luke 23, 9, he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Now this seriously irritates Pontius Pilate. Pilate interprets Jesus' silence. At best, this guy's stupid. At worst, he's bad-tempered, sulky. He's got a dark cloud of dreariness above him. And if he's a god, he's probably going to take me out. Okay? Jesus answered. So, by the way, are you like, I thought he said he didn't talk. And now he's talking. Then he's not talking. And he is. You know? Peter helps us with this. And we're going to get to it at the end of the application next time we come to John chapter, Chris is teaching next week, so next time we come to John, Peter tells us that the silence that he demonstrated was him not reviling back, okay, he would give some information and he would kind of challenge people to think about what was going on in the grand scheme of things, but the moments of silence were the times where even though he was reviled, he didn't revile back. All right, we got the worship team. Let's have the worship team coming up because we're wrapping up here in Jesus's answer. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. <clears throat> Verse 11, you guys. Whew. Confusing, all right? Like, You got to do a little homework. And I'm not sure I've done enough on this one. Because what Jesus is getting at here, he recognizes the sovereignty of God that ultimately nothing has happened outside of the parameters of God moving events for the just to lay his life down for the unjust. There were a few guys that delivered Jesus up to trial, Judas Iscariot, but his time ended back in chapter uh, 18. And so it's probably not Judas Iscariot that, you know, has the greater sin. He's got his own issues. He's got his own judgment and he's going to go and he's going to have his own sad end, but it's probably not Judas. Okay. We know that God doesn't sin and he cannot be tempted to sin, So God the Father's off the hook as having the greater sin, and yet there's a sovereign aspect of God that is orchestrating events for Judas, for Pilate, and most likely, most understandings of this is that Caiaphas, the high priest, the mob boss of many high priests at that time, most of them related to him, his sons and sons-in-laws, who Should have known the Messiah, should have known Jesus, had every benefit of the scriptures and the prophecies to know when the Messiah was coming to champion for the the world and not to just merely have a kingdom that was temporary and on the earth, but to have a kingdom over men's hearts that would forgive sin. It would be eternal. These guys should have known better. And yet, because of their pride and because of their ego, much like many of us, they were blind to the truth, and not only let Jesus pass by, but actually did everything in their power to eliminate Jesus, Messiah, Savior of the world. And so, I've got three big, giant paragraphs that I was tempted to read to all of you guys to help you understand verse eleven. But don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Okay, ultimately. We're looking at Caiaphas in this immediate context as the one that has the greater sin. Pontius Pilate, not exonerated as a neutral flake, but not the one with the greater sin. Pontius Pilate is going to go on to uh, be sent back to Rome. Uh, He loses his job in Judea. He leads some soldiers against an uprising and ends up killing thousands and thousands of people in a controversial battle. And, uh, and what would often happen with the Romans in those days when they were basically shamed, like he was in the midst of this battle, uh, he would take all of his goods and pass them down to his children and he would go and take his own life. And so that was the, the sad end of Pontius Pilate. Well, Cover the latter part of the trial here, and then as it goes into the crucifixion of Jesus in the weeks to come. Why don't you go ahead and set your things aside? Lots to think about, huh? There's a lot there. It's like, whoa, you know, Pilate, over with the Jews, back over with Jesus, Jesus in the locker room with the Roman soldiers, back to Pilate, back to the road, over to Herod, back to you know, whoa, lots of scenes in the midst of the drama, in the midst of the story, lots of heart things being exposed here. I don't know that we are that far off from the privileges that the Jews had. I think that we have been raised in a nation that has offered just as much intellectual stimulation to show us that we are sinners in need of a savior and to grow up in a nation that had in its bedrock Jesus as Lord the the revelation of sin the need for repentance the need for a savior and yet just like the Jews in this case many of us have pushed that aside pushed that away bought into humanistic naturalism that, you know, maybe we're good people, or maybe we're just a figment of imaginations or whatever, but we don't need any savior. And I'm pretty sure I'm good enough to make it on my own. And so we de-God God, and we elevate man, and we let Jesus the Messiah just maybe be some sort of legend out there on felt cut out boards in Sunday school classrooms across the nation but the New Testament speaks of those who would hear his voice today if you hear his voice today don't harden your heart and then it's in Hebrews where it says remember when the Jews heard the voice of the Lord and then they hardened their heart against God in the rebellion where they made the golden calf. Remember that? They hardened their heart. They made the golden calf. And in that one day, 23,000 of them died. If you hear his heart today, don't harden your heart. You, you harden your heart one time and the next thing you know, you're standing in front of Pontius Pilate saying that God should be crucified. So today, you've heard his voice. You've heard the hope of forgiveness of sins. You've seen someone who loves you take it for you. Take it in the cheek. Take it in the chin. Take it in the forehead. Take it on the back. All of it for love. And I just beg of you today. I plead of you today. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. Don't let one more day Go by where your heart is calloused against him, it will not be easier tomorrow. Tomorrow, you won't feel greater softness towards Jesus and what he experienced before Pontius Pilate. Next week, it's not going to be easier for you. You're familiar with calluses, right? The friction and the buildup, and you've got a callus, and then you use the shovel or you lift the weights again, and more callus. And then the next week, more callus. Pretty soon, you got a working man's hand, right? Same thing is true for your heart. You keep coming to Calvary Chapel and hear of a God that loves sinners and died for sinners and you wink at it and push it aside. You push it farther next week. You ignore it the next until it means nothing at all to you in a month from now. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Will you bow your head with me and move to prayer I want to make a call today. I, I plead with you today. Today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th time, you've heard the story of Jesus tried before Pontius Pilate, found before that governor to have done no sin, but hated by sinners. Delivered up to death for sinners. Sinners. And we know the whole story. It was all part of the plan that that spotless blood would be shed, that our sins, our spotful sins, could be forgiven and washed away. And today, if you feel the Lord touching your heart, knocking on the door of your heart, saying, this is for you, I've done this for you. I experienced the mockings and the beatings and the reviling and the ridiculing and eventually the cross, all for you. That all those things that you've done, all that sexual immorality, all of that drunkenness, all that licentiousness, all that debauchery, all the things you've looked at, all the places you've gone, the things you've heard, The way you've mocked others, the way you've beaten others, the way you've lived for yourself, the way that you've said your ways are better than his ways. He wants you to know that all of that can be forgotten. All of it can be forgiven. If you'll come to him like a little child, receiving a gift, excited about a gift, Oh, you're going to open up that gift and you're not really going to know how it works. You never know how those gifts work. You got to read the instructions. You got to put it together. You got to kind of just spend time with it. Maybe right now you're like, I don't get this whole Jesus thing. But I know today it's real. I know today he is in front of me. And how can I stand here with Jesus and not be moved by Jesus? Jesus, you've moved me. I want you. I need you come into my life, change my heart. Rory was talking about a stone cold, rock hard heart and I just need that gone, Lord. And I need a heart that can hear you and know you and be moved by you. So right now today, if that is you, I'm going to ask you to just lift up your hand so that I can pray for you. I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand so you and me can acknowledge together that God is touching me today. He's touching my heart. He's touching my inner person. I want to be new. The Lord sees you. Praise the Lord. Amen. God sees you. Right now where you're at, just lift your hand up and just let it be known to the Lord. Lord, I heard your message today. I want new life. I want what you've done for me to be placed into my account. I want to be forgiven. And Rory was even talking about all that Damage and that weight behind my life that has just caused so much pain and heartache, Lord, I need you to come in and I need you to set things right, make things new, bring healing. Is there anybody else today? The beginning of our message, we talked about how by his stripes, you are healed. Lord sees you. You just know right now, as you lift up your hand, just thank the Lord. Say, Lord, right now, I'm just, I'm thanking you for taking that whip to your back for me. I'm thanking you for taking that crown to your head. The Lord sees you too. Thank you for shedding that blood for my healing. The chastisement that was upon you bought my peace. We believe from the Bible today, friends, that as you respond to the good news of the gospel, there's peace upon your life. It's coming. It's coming. The Lord's working. The Lord's sorting things out. There's healing upon your life. There's healing upon your heart. Receive it today. Be thankful for it today. Many of you, it's the first time you've responded to the Lord in this way. The Bible calls it being born again. A new heart, a new mind, a new life. Receive that today. It's your birthday. We can share birthday today. Anybody else? This final call. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't callous it. Break it open right now. You got to bust through that thing. Say, Lord, I want you. I need you. Thank you. You got to change me. Lord sees you. Lord sees you. Something spiritual is happening now in you. It's awkward. It's odd. We're not used to it. But it's real. And he is placing his Holy Spirit in your life. Receive him. Anybody else? Then I'm going to pray for you. church. there are wounds in our church. and there are habits in our church that are happening because many who have an external appearance of religion, have not been born again. If you want healing, if you want change, if you want rottenness gone, it will never be gone by your external religion and by your polished outside there will only be change from the gospel of Jesus changing your heart redeeming you making you new, and reconciling you to himself. If that's you today, very religious, not born again, just let the Lord do a work in you right now. Just confess that to him. I'm very religious, Lord, you know that. I I check all the boxes for someone that's just Got it all together, pretty polished. But Lord, you know, change my insides. And Lord, so I pray for people that have just had the courage to lift their hand today and to just say, "Just Jesus, this was for me today. To see what you've done. And I want that for me. Forgive me of my sin. Wash them away. Give me that new heart want to live for you. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Let today be my birthday, Lord. The day where I begin living for you. For your fame. For your glory. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for what we've read today. Let's stand together.